Welcome to Fear and Greed Business News, Australia's best business podcast. It is Thursday, the 10th of August, 2023. I'm Michael Thompson, and normally we'd have Sean Aylmer here, but Sean is currently on a plane heading off to the US, having complained about the US dollar for some time, is now off to uh, to spend some of that. Uh, instead, we are joined by Jennifer Duke, who by day is the economics correspondent at Capital Brief, and by early morning is a Fear and Greed podcaster. Jen, good morning. Good morning. And by evening is completely exhausted. <laughs> yes, by the sounds of that, they are very, very full days. Look, um, after the show, you have got a really interesting interview coming up with Diana Messina, who is uh, the Deputy Chief Economist at AMP. And normally when we talk to Diana, uh, she's talking about um, about the economy. But today, it's something a little bit different. That's right. I'm talking to her about financial literacy, and there's some really interesting data in there that she goes through about how financially illiterate a lot of us actually are. So it's definitely worth a listen. It's actually really quite confronting. I would agree with you. It is definitely mm. worth a listen. It's coming up a bit later on. Uh, the main story this morning, though, is a biggie. The Commonwealth Bank has reported a record net profit after tax of $10.16 billion at its full year results. It is a 6% increase over the year. It's a really solid result, and the bank's going to increase the payouts to shareholders, giving a final dividend of $2.40, bringing the yearly total to four fifty dollars a share, which is a 17% rise over last year, and shareholders can't be, can't be too unhappy with that. Um, they also can't be too displeased with the profit result like that. I think the last record for CBA was $9.89 billion around that in 2017. So it's really a milestone that they've actually passed, the, uh, the $10 billion kind of threshold, isn't it? We need to make that a fear and greed thing. Whenever anyone beats the $10 billion threshold. <laughs> I mean, it's it's probably not a, a threshold that many companies are go- going to be passing. So it's not an award that we'll be presenting that often. But today, Commonwealth Bank gets it. That's true. And I'm sure the CBA executives will be thrilled to hear our congratulations. <laughs> I'm, sure, I'm sure they will. Well, Suncorp also posted results and they had net profit after tax reaching $1.148 billion for 2023, which is up from $681 million the year before. While that sounds pretty rosy, there are a couple of grey clouds in the sky at the moment that aren't too hard to spot if, you are, if you're listening to results closely. Uh, the CBA chief executive, Matt Common, said the economy has been resilient, but there are signs of downside risks building. The bank's mortgage customers aren't falling behind on their repayments to a level that's too concerning, but rising interest rates have a lagged effect and are yet to be fully felt. Plus, the rising cost of living means higher expenses are starting to kick in, and CBA spending data is showing younger customers are rapidly cutting their spending. This has a pretty big effect on businesses too, of course. Yeah, of course. They're interesting results, and I suppose they're part of of kind of a broader trend within the banking industry. What are we kind of seeing then reflected overseas? So it's pretty interesting because rating agency Moody's downgraded the credit ratings of 10 small to mid-sized banks over the past few days. The agency is keeping a close watch on six other banks too, while cutting the outlook for 11 to negative down from stable. So this is all in the US? That's right. That's that's all the US banks. So it's because of worries over high interest rates, which obviously we're feeling here and pretty much everywhere across the Western world, the potential for a recession, and the commercial real estate market, which a lot of lenders in the US have significant exposure to. But over in Italy, banks are having a pretty hard time as well. I don't know if you uh, if you know much about Italian banking. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to have to be honest here. Italian banking is not my forte, but I'm keen to learn. As I always say with Sean, I'm here just to absorb his knowledge. And so in his absence, 
I need you to teach me. We're all we're all learning a lot about Italian banks at the moment, so don't think you're on your own. But the government over there, the Italian government, hit them up for a 40% windfall profits tax for 2023. And the authorities were saying that they're going to use that extra money to help the borrowers there who are struggling at the cost of their loans. I know there's probably a few Aussies thinking, why can't the why can't the Australian uh, government do the same with the banks here? Forty percent is that is huge. It was it was a pretty big windfall profits tax, and it was funny because it gave the investors a lot of jitters. And sort of by the end of the day yesterday, the finance ministry said that the tax on net interest income would actually end up with a cap on it. So it turned out a bit more conservative by the end of the day. All right, so it's a pretty remarkable time at the moment for banks. Back home uh, and and putting aside the Commonwealth Bank for the moment, how did local markets perform yesterday? Yes, yeah, so the S&P ASX 200 closed up 0.4% yesterday to 7336.5 points. There were mixed results. Invocare was a strong performer, up by almost 5.8%. Coronado Global Resources and BSP Financial Group were both up over 4%, and the banks rallied through the afternoon with all the big four posting increases. But healthcare slumped, led by ResMed, with a fall of over 4.4%. And on international markets, there's a big story coming out of China. So China has fallen into deflation for the first time in two years. The consumer price index fell 0.3% in July, and demand has weakened significantly. This follows a jump in spending after the easing of pandemic restrictions, so it's not entirely unexpected. And there have been some serious economic headwinds, including a global drop in demand for Chinese goods. The property market is also pretty subdued over there. So while this isn't a total surprise, deflation is pretty rare, and this will likely have Chinese authorities considering their options for stimulus, both fiscal and monetary. China's global influence could also drive down prices in parts of the West, like Australia, where high inflation is clearly still a problem. Time will tell on this one, but we know there have been concerns about spillover effects from China's economic slowdown already this year. All right. There is a fair bit happening both here and abroad. I love that. I love that word, abroad. It makes me sound, it makes me sound so much more cultured <laughs> than I am. But anyway, we will be looking at both the domestic and the international news. We'll be back in a moment with the rest of the day's business news. Now, Jen, Amazon is building Australia's biggest ever warehouse, and it's going to be staffed by both people and robots. That's right. I don't know if you're an Amazon shopper, but I am guilty. I'm pretty (laughs) sure everyone in the country has shopped on Amazon at one time or another. I think Amazon probably agrees with that because they are (laughs) launching this new automated fulfillment centre in Melbourne's Craigieburn, and it will be 209,000 square metres in size. Yeah, it's pretty giant. It's expected to open in 2025. Amazon does have a similar size site in Sydney's Kemp's Creek, but it's 830 square metres smaller, so we'll have to hand oh. it to Melbourne. Hang on, hang on. So that's 830 square metres out of 209,000 square metres? I mean, Sydney's pretty expensive real estate. So. Yeah, I know, but it does just feel like that was a token 830 square metres just so so I'd say, hey, this one's bigger than the other one. Let's get a bit of competition happening between the states. Melbourne loves to rub it in. Yeah, yeah. let's, let's move on. I'm speculating too much. Well, I'm going to speculate a little bit now as well, because it does seem like that new Melbourne warehouse is a big signal about Amazon's commitment to a long-term future in the Aussie market particularly at a time when household spending is starting to slump. In June, the US retail giant forecast it would reach $5.5 billion in turnover in the next financial year. And its reported revenue jumped 50% year-on-year in 2022. 
Some analysts think budget-conscious shoppers will increasingly turn to Amazon to find cut-cost alternatives, and I think I agree with that. There was a um, a legendary story in radio, Jen, and I know that your background, you've covered a lot of different things and you're a, a media writer uh, yes. for uh, some of the, the Fairfax papers for a while there, so you may have come across this one about radio presenters measuring each other's offices to see whether certain presenters had larger offices than others. <laughs> Given your background, you need to tell us who these radio presenters were, I think. <laughs> oh, no, this, this was long before I was in radio, but these stories are legendary. Uh, and I just wonder whether Amazon have, have done the same thing here. I'm just fascinated by the fact that this <laughs> that the Melbourne Centre is just fractionally smaller than the Sydney one. I just wonder whether they've been down there with a tape measure going, right, this will not do and we will strike back. Well, 830 square metres extra gets you a story on fear and greed, you know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's that's all it takes. Now we know what the threshold is. It's marketing. Yep. Now, <laughs> I mentioned this one in the intro, Jen. The Australian Council of Trade Unions is taking the cost of living crisis into their own hands by launching an inquiry into price gouging. That's right. The ACTU's inquiry into so-called greedflation will be led by former Australian Competition and Consumer Commission Chair Professor Alan Fells. Now, Professor Fells says the role that he's now taken on echoes the very beginning of his career at the Price Justification Tribunal. He's promising businesses that this won't be a witch hunt, though. The inquiry will include public hearings and a final report that we all know the unions will be using to lobby for some policy change in Canberra. ACTU Secretary Sally McManus has been criticising the current cost of living crisis as a profits crisis, and there's ongoing debate among economists about the drivers of inflation. The unions have been warning that rising business profits are a significant driver of the recent inflation surge, and working class people are paying the price at the expense of corporate greed. All right, we shall see how this one plays out. Now, the board of Australia's largest funeral and crematoria operator, Invercare, has accepted a $1.8 billion takeover offer from TPG Capital. That's right. As we flagged yesterday, the private equity firm made a $12.70 a share offer. It has now been accepted and will be voted on by shareholders in October. TPG already holds a 19.98% stake in Invocare. Invocare's share price jumped about 6% on news of the deal following a trading halt earlier in the week. Invocare, which is best known for those brands White Lady and Simplicity, manages over 40,000 funerals a year, which I don't know if you can actually say this like getting in trouble, but it seems to be killing it on market share because there were just over 171,000 deaths in 2021. Oh my goodness. I mean, uh, so Sean has barely even been gone for kind of what, 12 hours or something. And you have already just slipped seamlessly into um, into his role of making terrible puns. It's awful. It's really awful, oh, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It, it is. But <laughs> it has to be done. Now, oil and gas business, Beach Energy's chief executive, Mornay Engelbrecht, which is a fantastic name, isn't it? Has quit after about 15 months in the job. I'm glad that you're pronouncing that name and that I'm not, but the new top job will be filled by Brett Woods, a Santos executive in February. The change in senior appointment is making some investors a bit uncomfortable. It marks the third boss for the business in about three years and production isn't where they'd like it to be. Kerry Stokes' Seven Group Holdings owns about 30% of Beach Energy, so it takes a keen interest. Seven Group Chief Ryan Stokes was recently appointed as a director, and the company's full results are due to be released on Monday, which will now attract even more attention than usual from the media and pretty much everyone else. Yes, we shall be watching very closely here at Fear and Greed. Now, in politics, Jen, the coalition is promising to put a 
coal to nuclear transition in regional areas at the core of its 2025 energy policy. Tapping into the nation's uranium stocks will also be a major focus of the opposition. That's right. I mean, Labor at the moment is currently working out what role nuclear will play in its energy transition plan, if any at all. But the coalition is pushing ahead with some parts of it already. In particular, election hotspots in Central and North Queensland, as well as the New South Wales Hunter Valley, would be their major focus for small modular reactors. These are heartland coal mining areas, and the work and well-being of locals often relies on these industries. The opposition's energy and climate change spokesman, Ted O'Brien, wrote a column in The Australian yesterday saying nuclear can leverage existing coal plant infrastructure and avoid all that environmental damage of transmission lines that new wind and solar projects require. A formal blueprint plan for this energy transition, which will include gas and nuclear, will be released by the coalition before the next federal election. And still in Canberra, uh, Australia's ambassador to the US, former Prime Minister Kevin Rudd, has been helping to launch a new report warning the skills shortage in technology will hold back Australia's digital future. That's right. The report was put together by Accenture, the Tech Council of Australia, Microsoft and LinkedIn, who all collaborated on a bunch of research, which shows 102,000 Australians are employed in US-based tech firms and 4,000 workers move from US tech firms to Australian businesses annually. The tech giants want more Australia-US relations to improve workforce growth. One of the big points they're making is that half Australia's successful startups were launched or scaled with the support of US tech talent, and these skills from America can help drive economic growth. Clearly, the tech companies want Canberra to focus more on partnerships and investments between the US and Australia. Yeah, it does seem that way, doesn't it? Uh, and there's yet another shakeup, Jen, happening at our big institutions. This time, uh, it's the corporate watchdog preparing for a leadership makeover. The government's institutional renewal efforts are continuing unabated. Federal Treasurer Jim Chalmers is set to change up to four of the commissioners at the Australian Securities Investments Commission. He's had a busy year already with major changes at the Reserve Bank and the Productivity Commission already ticked off of his to-do list. Now, the Australian Financial Review is reporting that one of the commissioners, Danielle Press, her five-year term will not be renewed in September. Kathy Armour and Sean Hughes' terms ended over the last year and a half and formal recruiting has been underway. Deputy Chairwoman Karen Chester will also not be staying when she finishes at the beginning of next year. It's possible that the Treasurer will choose to have fewer commissioners, but time will tell. It would be unlikely, wouldn't it, to to scale down the, the number of, of commissioners, wouldn't it? There's definitely been some suggestions that fewer commissioners might lead to some more efficiencies and they don't necessarily need that many. I know that's that's come up okay. in the past, but I don't know necessarily that the treasurer is thinking along those lines at the moment. It's quite a hefty to-do list that he's come in with, isn't it? That's right. <laughs> just working his way through, just bang, 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 just going through and just changing things up. So it's, it's fascinating for a business podcast like Fear and Greed to be watching it. Now, uh, this is a a pretty remarkable story just because it has been so prominent over the last number of years. WeWork might not be working for much longer, I guess you'd say, after the co-working space company issued a warning to investors that saw shares plummet. Yeah, I was really surprised by this one. WeWork's earnings and revenue fell pretty short of expectations and the shares fell more than 30% after the company warned there was substantial doubt about its ability to keep on operating. It's suffering major losses and cancelled office space memberships. Now, its near-term future is going to be focused on cutting costs, including sort of lease expenses, as it seeks to improve liquidity and profitability. 
In 2019, the company was valued at $47 billion when it was in a funding round. Now it's around $166 million. WeWork was once New York City's biggest office tenant and last year had more than 370 office spaces in Australia. So it's a pretty significant change. Yeah, sure is. Okay, one last one before we get to international news. A national renters' rights agreement is underway with state and federal leaders to meet to tackle housing affordability. So national cabinet meeting is being held in Brisbane next week, which will include rental rights discussions and negotiations on planning laws for the federal government's national housing accord. The accord was announced in last year's budget and promised an additional million homes through collaboration with the states and territories. But it's not all smooth sailing. The Greens are currently (laughs) blocking the government's $10 billion Housing Australia Future Fund, which is stilled in the Senate, and wants a rent freeze. I'm sorry, I have to laugh because that is just (laughs) such an understatement, isn't it? It's not all smooth sailing. No, that this is being blocked and it could end up being the trigger for a double dissolution election. So it is far from smooth sailing at the moment. It's pretty bad. It's it's a really tough situation for them to be in. And the federal government's rights discussion for renters is not expected to consider the rent caps issue, but instead broader issues like no cause evictions. All right. Turning to international news now, credit card balances in the US have risen above $1 trillion for the first time on record. Yeah, there was a $45 billion jump in the April to June period, which pushed credit card balances over this dubious threshold, which is uh, based on data from the New York Federal Reserve. This was a 4% increase, but it's not just the headline figure that is particularly concerning. The number of credit cards with outstanding debt payments that are 30 or more days late increased to 7.2%. That's the highest rate since 2012. And it's a clear sign Americans are finding it tougher to get by though there is some normalizing happening post-pandemic lockdowns as well in that figure. Overall, household debt increased to $17.06 billion from $16 billion, which is another record. Okay, one last one, Jen. I love this story. This is It's actually quite extraordinary and probably a little bit alarming. A deal is on the cards between Google and Universal Music to license singers' voices uh, to use them for songs generated by artificial intelligence. I am also fascinated by this. It's the monetizing of deep fake songs that have computer generated mimics of popular artists. And it's been considered to be a big threat to the music industry and to artists in general. The Financial Times is reporting that the tech and music giants are now leaning into this as a commercial opportunity, but are at the early stages of talks without products likely to be unveiled soon. Major label Warner Music has also been linked to these discussions. Some celebrities and artists like Drake and Ice Cube have been concerned about the use of AI to fake their talents. Now, I've got to mention, though, that Grimes is actually quite open about this. And you know that I'm fascinated with Elon Musk and Grimes. So I thought that was an interesting, refreshing perspective. Yes, Ice Cube. (laughs) It's interesting that he's concerned about um, (laughs) AI duplicating his, um, his talents. I think you're putting your taste on the line here. <laughs> I am. I'm just worried. I just don't want them to replicate Barry Gibb. I mean, that would be horrific. There's only one Barry Gibb and there's really only one BG. So anyway, look, let's leave that to one side. Uh, Jen, up next is the Fear and Greed Daily interview. You're speaking today with Diana Messina, Deputy Chief Economist at AMP. That's right. We were chatting about financial literacy and some really concerning statistics that should make us all really pause and have a think about how we fix this issue. Yes. Coming up next in the Fear and Greed playlist on your podcast platform or at fearandgreed.com.au. Jen, first one down. Thank you very much. (laughs) 
Yay. All right. It's Thursday, the 10th of August, 2023. Make sure you're following the podcast and join us online on LinkedIn, Instagram, X, and Facebook. I'm Michael Thompson, and that was Fear and Greed Business News. Have a great day.